0: of verse 16 and 17. First Corinthians chapter three, verse 16. If you can pull that up, I wanna read verse 16 and 17. We're gonna open in a word of prayer and then we're gonna work through some ideas around what is called an archetypal vision of the permanent presence of God in and with his people through Christ. It's what the idea of the temple is all about, the permanent presence of God in and with his people through Christ. I want to talk about it. Then we're going to do a little bit of a historiography to hopefully make this optic, this archetypal optic make sense to us. So I'm going to read verse 16 and 17, then I'm going to open in prayer, then we'll kind of just tear it apart, see what it See what it says for us. Father, thank you for your mercy. Thank you for those that are present. Thank you for those that are coming. Thank you for those that are watching. We're asking now that you open our eyes and our heart to who you are and your word, which is an exact representation of your character and nature as revealed to us in Jesus, your son. We're praying that your spirit of your spirit would give us understanding, it would grant us humility. It would grant us insight and discernment, that it would help us to distinguish as the Apostle Paul is calling us to distinguish between what it means to be carnal and what it means to be spiritual and how those two antagonisms express themselves in the world. So we're praying your mercy upon your people everywhere in the world. You know they long for you, they need you, they want you. We have challenges and trials and difficulties individually and collectively as families. And you alone, oh God, can heal. You alone can deliver. You, can, you alone can protect and provide and cover uh, and bring us into that fullness that you promised us in Jesus Christ. And, uh, and we wait for it. We wait for it. Um, our hearts pant after you as the heart pants after the water brook. So we pant after our God. Grant us the grace, Lord, to sit at your feet and hear your voice. We're coming to you on the grounds of your son's blood, our cleansing, our purging, our sanctification, our washing. We come to you on the grounds of his righteousness, our standing. Immutable, unchangeable, irrevocable for all eternity. Christ in us and we in Christ and we in you and you in us, Father, by your spirit. Again, we ask your mercy upon all those that we know and love and care about for strength, healing, intervention across the totality of human difficulty. This we know you can do and we trust you will in Jesus name. Amen. Amen. So again, in first Corinthians chapter three, verse 16 and 17, Paul gives us what I'm trying to impress you and I with an archetypal picture of what eternity is about when he uses the term temple. 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 16 and 17, know ye not that you are the temple of God, right? And, And many of us have heard that for many, many years, and we are fully persuaded of the simplicity of that proposition. You all are, that's the nature of the language. You in that context is not in the Singular noun form is in the plural when you're reading your Bible, particularly New Testament. I've told you this before. It's not talking to you and me individually, personally, except by application. Whenever the apostle is writing letters, he's writing to the whole group. So we say like we do in Texas, y'all, y'all. Okay. Um, know ye not that y'all are the temple of God and that the spirit of God dwells in y'all. Verse 17 If any man defile the temple of God, him shall God destroy. For the temple of God is holy, which temple y'all are. Verses 16 and 17 by the Apostle Paul is actually reminding the Corinthians of their identity. He's reminding them of their identity. You and I know that's a big battle going on in our world right now. It's a big battle per capita on an individual level as to How human beings perceive themselves its a big battle uh, in legislature. It's a big battle in policy. It's a big battle sociologically and culturally today. It's an amazing thing that men and women cannot easily define who they are. Isn't that an amazing thing? Um, Today, it's controversial. Today, you could lose your job if you misgender someone, if you misdefine someone. And yet God says we as people of God should be clear on who we are. Now, to be sure, we are more than just the temple of God. But in terms of this concept, this archetype, this big type, the temple of God, God wants the people of God to know that this is no small thing for you. If you and I miss... Um, if we misdefine ourselves in terms of our identity, in terms of our uh, character, in terms of our calling on any of the other areas of life for which we can have our identity, we have multiple identity markers. You do know that. So when a person asks, who are you, it's really easy for you to say seven or eight things about yourself, right? That is really true. And then when a person asks, what are you? I'm going to continue to drill down into this. You can actually also assert three or four or five different what's on top of the who's. Because we're many things. But as people of God, what God would remind us is, is that we are collectively and consummately a dwelling place for him. Now, again, uh, you know, I don't want that to be just for effect, but it's pretty good to know that God dwells in us and he dwells with us. And when the term temple is used versus tabernacle, tabernacle is temporary. Temple is permanent. And that's important to know. I'm going to be walking through a a few what we would call academic historical accounts around that. But I, I think I want you to take away from our study in preparation for future studies as we walk with the Apostle Paul is this. Don't let anyone tell you that you are anything different than what God has told you you are. That's like the first thing we got to get. And in this particular interest, God is actually staking his reputation on who we are because of who he is. And so when God says that you are the temple of the living God, God is now saying you become an invested interest in me as a representative of me to the world. So there is a symbiosis, symbiosis right there, right? A relationship between me and God where God is who he is. And I am who I am. And if we have a relationship, who I am reflects on who he is and who he is reflects on who I am. And if my witness is consistent everywhere I go, people get to know a little bit about him through me. If I get it right. And again, I want you to know that when we are now embracing this term temple, God is actually laying down a kind of gauntlet in a world that really should recognize him as the center and foundation of the total existence of everything in the universe. Um, And I would think that most creatures do, except mankind. (laughs) Most creatures get the maker. That's Isaiah 1, right? The storks know their maker. The cows know their maker. The oxen know their maker. The ass know their maker. But God says, but my people don't know me. That's Isaiah chapter 1. So we know that you and I are dealing with a very, very challenging archetype, grand archetype around the temple because the temple has been built and the temple has been destroyed. And the temple has been built and the temple has been destroyed and built and destroyed over and over again. And that historical reality of a building of a temple and a destruction of the temple and the building of the temple as a pattern up to this present day means that the temple is something that God's arch enemy wants to destroy. Because it sets the eyes of eternity bound souls on God. When a temple is established, does that make some sense? All right. So now going back to the verse, I want you to note what Paul is doing in the verse. In verse 17, he is saying, if any man defile the temple of God, him, God will what? All right. So if I have my board up here, I would work with you. In the grammar, the word defile is the same word for destroy, okay, in the text. So when it says, if any man defile the temple of God, him, God will what? destroy, you could easily say him, God will defile. Why? Because it's the same Greek term that's being used for defile as it is for being used for destroy. Now, what the translators are doing here, I believe, is not justified grammatically, but it is justified theologically because the central subject of the text is the temple. And we all know that a temple requires consecration and holiness. That a legitimate understanding of a purpose for a temple is for cleansing and purifying and consecration. And that people that come to it are either coming cleansed, purified and consecrated, or they're coming for cleansing, purifying and consecration. Does that make sense? We'll see that shortly. So the reason the translators didn't go, if any man defile the temple of God, him shall God defile, and that would have been a perfectly appropriate translation. Same Greek terms, are you following me? Without any variation in the tense or modality of it, it could have easily been done. For the temple of God is holy, which temple you are. What they're doing, what the English translators did, was simply give us the two modes of assault that has taken place on the temple historically, now, two modes of assault that has taken place on the temple historically has been this: from the inside where men and women have had the privilege to be part of the temple history, the temple process, they have frequently defiled the temple of God, and that would refer to Pseudo or false believers or corrupt believers are those who pretended to be believers as would be the case with Korah, Dathan, and Abiram in the wilderness, Nadab and Abihu in the wilderness, the two sons of Aaron. They had a right in their physicality because their lineage was Levitical. They had a right to draw near to God, but because their hearts were not right, they were defilers of the temple. Does that make some sense? And then in the days of, uh, Samuel, the first judge of Israel, first, um, prophet of Israel, he, uh, Phine- uh, uh, Eli had two sons, right? Ophni and Phineas, and they were defilers of the temple, if you guys recall. And because of their defilement, the temple was destroyed. So the first destruction was the tabernacle in the days of, um, of Samuel and Eli, and I want you to see that briefly. This is going to be in first Samuel, probably chapter four. If we can find it, I want to just mark out just a bit of a history around what um, what what uh, what Paul is stating over in chapter four um, we 're going to start at verse one and make our way through verse eight, and I want you to see something because I want to develop the argument. That if we get the temple wrong, we will get our victory wrong. Right. So I'm I'm just going to build that argument out and I'm going to show you something. And I'm hoping over the next 50 minutes to lead us up to where we are in the contemporary challenges we're having in our world with our identity. Because you see, ostensibly, every human being should be the temple of God. Does that make sense? Right. Now, our first parents, Adam and Eve, blew that. So there's been a conflict in the human race since the fall of some people being of God and some people not some people being of God and other people being of the devil. The way John would put it in first John is he is of the devil who hates his brother. He is of God who loveth. it. That's the way John put it. You guys know that. 1 John 3 and 4. Uh, he's speaking of Cain and Abel. Abel was of God. Cain was not of God. Cain was of that wicked one. And what did Cain do? Cain destroyed the temple. What temple? His brother Abel. You guys keeping up with me? So I want you to see that because we're, we're in that same conflict paradigm today in our world and i I want you to understand why it's important for you to understand why you need to grasp a clear picture of you as being the temple of god because the enemy today wants to destroy your temple if you weren't catching it if you weren't catching what i was saying that's it now that you got it you can go home because that's the battle either the destruction of the temple or the building up of the temple That's really the battle. And for Israel, Israel made a mistake. You you and I are going to learn this on Sunday. By the way, let me say this now. There's no Friday study. okay? so y'all can go on vacation. I'll meet you back Sunday. No Friday study. So you can come if you want to. I I already told you that, but I won't be here. Um, And if somebody's up here who looks like me, then you know what they've done. They've cloned me. I've got artificial intelligence has created a, a copy of PJ. All right, so I just need you to know we, we really in the warfare. If you see me up here and I'm actually up in Mendocino. OK, so you really are in the warfare at that point. OK, this is a battle. You should know. First Samuel chapter four, verses one through eight. Listen to the language. <clears throat> we're going to get the lesson and then we're going to move on. And the word of Samuel came to all Israel. Now, Israel went out against the Philistines to battle and they pitched beside Eben Ezer, and the Philistines pitched in Aphek. And the Philistines put themselves in array against Israel. And when they joined battle, Israel was smitten before the Philistines. And they slew of the army <clears throat> of the army of Israel in the field about 4,000 men. Wow. And when the people were come into the camp, the elders of Israel said, Wherefore hath the Lord did what? Smitten us today. I didn't really want to make a commentary, but this is so important. Now their enemies smote them physically, but they attributed that smiting to the hand of God righteously. So let's keep going. Then it says the Lord has smitten us this day before the Philistines. Now I want you to catch this. This is going to be important. Let us fetch the ark of the covenant of the Lord out of Shiloh unto us. That when it comes among us, it may save us out of the hand of our enemies. Whoa. Did you catch it? Hold it because, you know, I have been talking to you about the importance of thinking well in this church for a long time and how that when you don't think well, you can create in your own mind cognitive dissonance and therefore create conflict of categories and make assumptions that are not true. And don't correspond to reality, which somebody should have raised the question among these elders, because these are the elders. These are not common folks. These are the ones who are supposed to be elevated in terms of their relationship with God. So category number one, their enemies have beat them down. We already know, according to Torah, according to Deuteronomy, this could only happen if their rock gave them over. We know that. That's what Torah says. How can one put a thousand to flight unless they're in a, unless their rock let them go? And that rock being God. So when God is our rock and He's with us, one of us can put a thousand to flight. And when God has let us go, then a thousand of us can't even be one of our enemies. So the elders have acknowledged that the Philistines have beat them down, but then they turn around in this kind of cognitive dissonance. This is this weird reversal of logic and says, let us go get the Ark of the Covenant from Shiloh. It will protect us. Now, this is what we call the law of noetic effect. This is a loss of rationale. Nuos, nous in the Greek means the mind. When we fail as human beings, we lost the capacity to maintain a continuum, a continuum of clarity of thinking. Any of us at any given time can lose the capacity to think well and to actually operate out of a lower range of frequency, which would constitute bad decision-making. It, for someone else that's walking a little bit more healthy than you on that day, they would go, girl, that don't make no sense. What you talking about don't make no sense. Right. Does that make some sense? That's how we say it in the hood. That don't make no sense. Girl, what you doing? And, and you got to reason through. Why is it that you made a choice of something lesser over against something greater when something greater was just affirmed as the cause of your demise? Did that make some sense? Right. You are now choosing a lesser symbolic instrumentation of presence over against the greater reality of the presence of God. As if somehow the lesser instrumentality can do for you what the greater instrumentality did not do. Did that make some sense? Right. It's important for you and I to be thinking right as Christians, because unfortunately, in our churches, frequently we engage in what I call religious postmodern fantasy. And it's not good when we do that, because every human being was made with a conscience that has somewhat of an indicator of right and wrong. And the more we are engaging in irrational thinking and behavior, we are assaulting our intuitive capacity to know right and wrong. You can destroy your intuitive capacity for right and wrong by constantly smothering it with wrong choices, chaotic choices, irrational choices. This is how some of our children grow up with all kinds of psychopathic expressions because they can't trust their judgment because we didn't help them learn how to think well. I'm going to leave that right there for now. Notice what he goes on to say. Let us fetch the ark of the covenant of the Lord out of Shiloh unto us, that when it comes among us, it may save us out of our enemy's hands. Do you guys see that? So lock that in. I'll talk about that later. When I bring it up, you'll know it. The real versus the facsimile. The authentic versus the artificial. Okay, we're choosing the artificial versus the authentic. And we're asking the artificial to save us, even though all it is is symbolism. But the artificial is a representation of the real. So much so that the Shekinah dwells on it when it's pleased. But on this occasion, nothing of the Shekinah is present and it hasn't been for a long time. But because the people are in such a backwards way of thinking... They're going to the lesser, the facsimile, and now the false over against the true. This is what we call apostate religion. Did that come home? When we engage in this kind of choice making that doesn't correspond with the authenticity of God's real representation. All right. Now, notice what he goes on to say. Verse five. And when the ark of the covenant of the Lord came into the camp, all Israel shouted with a great shout so that the earth rang again. Now, do you see, not only did they make a choice for the lesser, the unauthentic, the facsimile and copy, but now they are trying to rev themselves up with a kind of celebration around it as if somehow it's gonna quicken that ark to fight for them. That's insane, isn't it? But it's what goes on every day in our world. Let me drill down into a little bit more, verse 6. And when the Philistines heard the noise of the shout, they said, What meaneth the noise of this great shout in the camp of the Hebrews? And they understood that the ark of the Lord was come up into the camp. And the Philistines were afraid, for they said, God is come into the camp. Stop. Uh oh. Now, when my enemies, who I happen to know, are raked. Unadulterated idolaters are actually framing a narrative that corresponds perfectly with my narrative. What I know is God is showing me that I'm deluded just as much as they're deluded because they're sharing the same story with me. Did that come home? Well, good. I want you to capture it. See, because they're idolaters, they worship gone. And all kind of other false idols that they make with their own hands. And those idols do not live. They do not breathe. They can't speak. They can't do good or do evil. You knock them down. They don't get up on their own. They're a piece of stock of wood or clay covered over with silver or gold. There is no life in them at all. And those that make them are what? Like unto them. So this is where you and I are in our culture today. Some people are being made over into the idolatrous image of something that constitutes a false God. And some of us are being made over in the image of the real and true and living God. And the battle that is taking place in the field of, of, of warfare, this this fifth generation warfare that I'm dealing with, is a battle of ignorance as to what is taking place so that men and women are making wrong choices, And Paul is asserting that this is what's going on in Corinth at this time, because as as I share with you the historiography of Corinth, Corinth was wide open to all forms of pagan, mystic, symbolic religion. And so rather than Corinth being clear on who the one true and living God is, they were open to, again, the mystery religions of the first century uh, Roman empire and Greek culture. And they allowed all of those pagans in and it created the party spirit. Remember what we learned? I am of Paul, I am of Silas, I am a Barnabas, I am of Christ. And these divisions indicated that they have failed to retain an understanding of the one true God who is the central organizing principle for all of us. Because see, once you break God up into parts, which is ludicrous, now every man is made over in the image of every individuated imagination that men can have. Now, if if that's occurring, there's no possibility of unity. There's no possibility of harmony. There's no possibility of any kind of collaborative endeavor for the glory of that central organizing principle, right? And this is what's happening with Corinth. Remember what we learned by Paul is Christ divided. Did Paul die for you? You know, did, was Apollos, a, a were you baptized in, in Paul's name? All these divisions come out of a misrepresentation of who God really is. These Philistines thought truly that because the Ark of the Covenant, which was only about three and a half feet long, two and a half feet wide, two and a half feet deep, a box, it had two beautiful cherub on each side. There's no doubt about it. And it was covered over in gold. But two brothers could carry the thing. How are you going to call that God? <laughs> two brothers carrying the thing. How are you going to call that God? You see how the mind can easily distort and descend into diabolically narrow thinking? Right. We, we would call that person a uh, hallucinating. Who would, who would believe that that is actually God? Well, this is called superstition. The Philistines were superstitious. Obviously Israel was, right? So Israel is partying like God is among them. And that put a little bluff on the Philistines, didn't it? And wow, these guys is, they're, they're, they're shouting in triumph like God is among them. Oh, I don't know what we're going to do. Now watch. What happens here? This is really interesting. It says over in verse 8, Warn to us who shall deliver us out of the hand of these mighty gods. These are the gods that smote the Egyptians with all the plagues in the wilderness. Excuse me. No. No. This is where, okay, so I'm going to use another term, teleology. Teleology or what we call biblical theology. Teleology is the history of God working. Progressively over the course of time to reveal himself. We say that God reveals himself progressively from the beginning of time to the end of time. So as he manifests his purposes and will in our life, he raises up men and women to be reflections of that. And we write it down or we put it in art or we put it in stone so that humanity knows that God showed up at this time. God showed up at that time. God showed up at this other time. And all of those pieces become a collective of the continuum of God's revelation. Does that make sense? That's Hebrews 1 verse 1, right? But God spoke in diverse times and in many ways to our fathers through the prophets. He's calling it piecemealing revelation. What we know about this statement is that the Philistines got it wrong. The ark didn't even come into being until we are in the third month of our journey in the wilderness. No, it wasn't a true God that got in the case of the Egyptians. And there was no image with God at that time. It was just God all by himself in his glory and his power with two old men, one with a stutter and the other one older than him in a crooked stick by which God destroyed Egypt because he uses the foolish things of the world to confound the mighty. Right. And, and it, there was no ornate, symbolic entity like an ark that was there. That came later. <clears throat> Very important to know. So often in, um, in religion, people get their history mess, messed up as well and you you need to know how to pick up on that because this was a misrepresentation of uh teleology as well as biblical theology but notice what happens over in verse 9 be strong and quit yourselves like men o ye philistines that ye be not servants unto the hebrews as they have been to you do you see it woo quit yourselves like men and fight. Now, something happened here, which is really interesting. They heard themselves talking about the God of Israel, and they thought this God of Israel, who in the past destroyed the greatest nation on earth, maybe he is going to subdue us, maybe not. They're looking back at history, and they're looking at the future. Here's what they're saying. If we just sit here and let the past, as we see it, dictate our outcome, we're doomed. Did that make some sense? All right, I'm gonna have to drill down into it to help you. If we sit here and let what we have framed as history be true, we are doomed. In other words, if we allow ourselves to succumb to fatalism and suggest that the past is equal to the present, then there is nothing we can do we will become their slaves. Did that make some sense? right, Christians dangerously fall into this trap too. Right, so you know, I've been telling you guys over this whole two and a half year COVID foolishness, not to allow yourself to think that the systems of this world and the governments of this world and the dark powers that govern this world are sovereign omnipotent and immutable haven't I told you that I've told you don't open your mouth talking like they are inevitably going to have their way because when you do that you are speaking anti-faith you cannot be speaking faith when you're taking the past and making it equivalent to the present as if the past is immutably the present and the future Right. So for believers, we never walk by past. We walk by and faith is always forward oriented and faith is always optimistic. And optimism is a favorable outcome of the future based upon the God who gives us promises of the future. Did that make some sense? Right. So like this is extremely important to know. The only way you and I can be pleasing to God is to see the future the way God sees it, because that's faith. And then you live in that faith and you declare that faith. What's really interesting here is the Philistines shook themselves from the past and said, we are going to fight through the inevitable. Give them credit. Give them credit. Y'all see what I'm saying? Give them credit because I'm thinking about how people don't fight. They just lay down. As soon as the government tells you what to do, they just lay down like like the government, like the government uh, conceived you in its womb, grew you for nine months, had you and raised you up. No, you you need to give your mom and your daddy more credit for that if you're not going to give it to God. But certainly not your government. Am I making some sense? All right, particularly in a constitutional country, you guys heard me on my program last night that Brother Paul had some insights into administrative authority as an excuse to a constitutional government. If you guys have read the incident, I know what he's talking about. So men and women are incrementally being talked out of their privileged position as children of God. And when you and I are being talked out of our privileged position as children of God, we don't have the Confidence, confideo, meaning to be in fellowship with God, confideo, it means to be in unity with God. Your confidence comes with your union with God. I'm going to say it one more time, confideo, faithfulness to God. It produces in you confidence, assertiveness, and therefore optimism to be able to say our God is with us, we will fight and obtain the victory, right? If anything, what we're going to make sure that we do is pursue counsel as to know what to do when the enemy is coming up on us, which neither the Israelites did nor the Philistines. So we know this warfare is taking place outside of the counsel of God as a reference point for the people of God. There's nothing that you and I should be doing where we don't first do what? In the multitude of counselors, there is safety, right? Right? In the multitude of counselors, you and I are able to have a good warfare. Notice what it says in verse 10 as it follows through. And the Philistines did what? They fought. And Israel was smitten and they fled every man into his tent. And I want you to mark this. And there was a very great slaughter for there fell of Israel 30,000 men. Now, remember, we just saw a few thousand slain a little earlier, now 30,000. So they are losing more men, are they not? I'll take you again back to Deuteronomy chapter 30. How shall one put 10,000 to flight except their Lord had given them over? So God has abandoned Israel to the losing to their enemies, has he not? It's important for you to see that. The next thing I want you to capture is this. Look at the next verse because we're almost home with me drilling down the point. I'll come back later. And the Ark of God was what? And the Ark of God was taken. There it is. The Ark of God was the symbolic representation of the presence of God and the throne of his glory. Because the Ark of the Covenant was in the Holy of Holies. God is king. He sits on his throne in the temple. That's where you meet God as the monarch of the universe. And God's throne is taken now. Albeit we're dealing with what? Symbolism. But symbolism matters to God because God told Moses to tell the people of Israel, build the tabernacle, build it this way, take the pattern that I'm giving you from heaven and make sure you do it right. There I will meet with you to forgive you of your sins and to counsel you as to how you should go. So when the ark is taken, Israel now has totally lost its identity. Did that make sense? They have no identity now, no national identity. They're done. They're getting ready to go through hell until King David shows up and that's gonna be 40 to 50 years from now. Does that make some sense? All right, I'm here to tell you that what you and I just read is a battle going on at the higher level of spiritual dimensions in the which you and I are living. And I hope you begin to see the, the traces of that framework taking place even now. Well, the goal of this world system is to completely eradicate the true and the living God from the minds of all human beings and to usurp its own false facsimile of a God in its place. If we keep the journey going down the road, Dagon is going to be the central conversation in the narrative in a moment, is he not? And this is the battle that you and I are facing. So Israel's own defilement, because God allowed this to happen to them because of the sin of Eli's two boys, And because the priests were corrupt, committing adultery and fornication in the tabernacle, you guys do know that they were defiling the tabernacle, weren't they? And because they defiled the tabernacle, guess what Paul said? God will defile them. And so defilement has taken place now. Israel is without a mediator. It's without a priest. It's without a king. It's without a God. This is what you and I want to be working through. Go back to our text now. Let me do a little bit of New Testament analysis to kind of uh, build around where we are so that our application can come home on the personal level. The takeaway that I want for you and me is that you and I are to take very seriously who we are in Christ and to drill down into our walk with God at such a level as to be able to naturally, as a secondary sort of impulse push back against everything that exalts itself against the knowledge of the truth there has to be a natural inclination to push back against everything that would seek to defile the temple of god does that make some sense right and and that means you got to wake up to all of the nefarious methods in which our system lies to you Because it lies to you on so many different levels to distract you from the real warfare. And the next thing you know, you're actually sounding like the enemy and actually working for the enemy. And you don't even know it. This is going to be very important going forward, particularly between now and the next election. I'm here to tell you, you are about to see some wild things in your world. Okay, at at, at profoundly demonic levels, at profoundly illusory levels, at profoundly psychologically troubling levels. And if you and I are not grounded in God, you and I will easily be swayed. Okay, very important. So going back to our text, here's what Paul had stated. If any man defile the temple of God, him shall God destroy for the temple of God is holy, which temple you what are. Now, look at verse 18. Let no man deceive himself. See it. If any man among you seems to be wise in this world, let him become a fool that he may be wise. Now, what is what God is doing right here is helping the Corinthians discover access to God. And it's by the oxymoronic principle of humility before honor. Humility before honor. Notice that he's still taking up the paradoxical terms that he used in 1 Corinthians chapter 1. What did Paul say in 1 Corinthians chapter 1? Start with me back in chapter 1 over in verse 21. For after that in the wisdom of God, the world by its wisdom did not know God. So now he's getting ready to do the antithesis between wisdom and what? foolishness. It pleased God by the what? Here it is. The moronic nature of preaching to save them that believe. So notice what what, what Paul is saying. What is highly esteemed among men is an abomination to God. This is Luke 16. And the Christian has to have a very sound set of mechanisms by which he is able to invert the wisdom of the world so that we don't see it as wisdom, but see it as foolishness. This is an inversion process that you have to have discernment for because the wisdom of the world is something that you and I in the physical dimension will naturally agree with because it corresponds to our natural carnal nature. Did that make some sense? So I'm going to say it once more because it's important to to understand that when one becomes a believer in Christ, we have to know how to acquire that discipline of inverting human wisdom so that it can be seen from God's vantage point, particularly when human wisdom boasts itself of being something that is not. As soon as human wisdom boasts itself of being something that is not, we have to invert its bigness and turn it into its smallness so that we can see it with God's eyes and be able to laugh at it for its ludicrousy. I'm trying to figure out another way to say this just to persuade you to understand this is extremely important. If it's true that the whole world lies in the lap of the wicked one, if it's true that a um, significant portion of any kind of interaction between the world and humanity is that of deception and lies, then we have no reason to not filter everything they say through the prism of biblical truth. And when we do filter it through the prism of biblical truth, we get to see (coughs) where that proposition is, where that idea is in its proximity towards the truth, how close it is to the truth, how far away it is to the truth, whether or not it's it's obscuring the truth or diminishing the truth. Did that make some sense? It can be far away enough for us to see it over there and go. It's not even in proximity with the truth. It's not dangerous. But as it gets closer to the truth, We have to be able to recognize the proximity, it's aggression toward truth, And that has to do with the way that idol is made. Because what I'm talking about is an idol, an imagination, a theory, a system, a worldview, a a set of propositions that come off to us as being plausible. Did that make some sense? Like a whole bunch of things that the world is telling you that are true, that are not true. Now, for you and I, it's a matter of not only knowing that they are true or not, but knowing to what degree their truth is so far away from the real truth. That is not a problem. But when it gets closer and closer and closer and closer to the truth, it becomes a problem. And when it has the capacity to obscure the truth, that becomes even more of a problem. And when it can diminish the truth, that becomes an exceedingly great problem. This is where Paul says in Second Corinthians chapter 10, that at that point, you and I must demolish. The practice of demolish is iconoclassism, seeing it for the idol that it is, calling it out and deconstructing it. Second Corinthians chapter 10. Let's start at verse four. Maybe I haven't been there in a while. Pull that up. There it is. For the weapons of our warfare are not what? All right, so stay right there. Stay right there. I want to help you with that because what I was saying earlier is the big battle in responding to ideas has to do with me. The big battle battle in responding to ideas has to do with me. I might get back there today, I might not. And what I mean by that is I, if I wake up, Eric, undiscerning that I am operating out of high levels of carnality, I can be deceived. If somehow I'm just being foolish today, letting my guard down, not realizing that I'm the temple of the living God and the spirit of God dwells in me. And he has every right for me to walk circumspect and be vigilant. I can be open to deception here. Listen to me, Christian. You can be deceived. I'm sorry. Don't don't just know you can. Right. So we can wake up not as clear as to our allegiance to God on any given day as we should be, and then we can go for a temporary delusional ride. I call it temporary because you know, ultimately, if you have a good practice of loving true, eventually you wake up to the incongruity of the lie that you've embraced, right? So the great whore, the system has seduced you into a temporary relationship and, and, and you're kind of enjoying it because largely it's about meeting the carnality of your flesh. But, but eventually, because you're a child of God, you pick up on the internal conflict that comes with that excessive gratification. That makes some sense, right? After a while, you go, "Nah, this is not satisfying. Something wrong here. Nah, this is not satisfying. I know it said grade A, 100% B, but it tastes like it's got a little chemicals in it somewhere. <laughs> well, because they're lying to you, right? They're lying to you, and so uh, the need to pick up the need to pick up on those kinds of things is important because if you don't have a discernment system that is robust. Just out of fatigue, you're not going to want to be discerning. If you don't have a discernment system that's robust, just out of fatigue, you're not going to want to prove all things and hold fast to that which is good. You're not going to want to. You're going to just want to believe that what they said is true about anything. See what I'm getting at? Because it's easier to just believe that they're telling you the truth, even though though God says all men are what? (laughs) Today, Lord, I'm going to put that precept down. I want this to be true. Right. And so it's extremely important to know that the weapons of our warfare are not carnal. But are mighty through God to the pulling down of strongholds. Now, again, that's just a military image of seeing a stronghold, which is a fortress behind which the enemy hides. To hurl harmful projections at you is hurling weapons of war at you to wound you or maim you or kill you or halt you or paralyze you or bring you into captivity. Does that make sense? And what Paul is saying here is our job is to destroy that stronghold, yes. to demolish that stronghold. I won't if I love what they are hurling at me. I'm not going to give you the list today. But there's a list of things they're hurling at us all the time. And some of us are saying, I think I can live with that. And this is no different than the battles that Israel fought, where God says everything is to be cursed. Now, every battle, God didn't say everything is to be cursed, but some battles he did. You guys know what I'm talking about, Jericho. Right. First um, Samuel with, with Amalek and Agag. Nothing was to be saved. Nothing was redeemable. There are things that you and I hear propositions, ideas, promises that are irredeemable. And what we have to be able to do is recognize that this is an accursed thing that I cannot modify and bring into my space and into my home and think that somehow it's going to be nice and kind to me and my family. The accursed thing must never make its way into our home. Did that make some sense? This is where our families have been destroyed in, in the West for many, many decades. We've allowed the accursed things in and the accursed things will sit there on the shelf. Harmless and quiet, waiting for you to imbibe it. That's the nature of harmless things. And then after a while, what you have taken as your servant, they become your master and you become its slave. I'm not going to give you names. I'm going to let you work it out. As you're driving home, may the Holy Ghost just start running a whole list in your, in your head of these kind of false idols that are close enough to get us in trouble if we don't think them through. All right. So notice what he says in verse five. We are casting down what? That's a lot of work. Now imaginations are theories. They're ideas. Your concepts. It, and so be careful of the word thoughts. The word thought is not like just having a thought in your head. It's a whole body of ideas. That's like like treaties and contracts. OK, that's what it's talking about. Right. Systems. Right. That's what it's talking about. Methodologies, wiles and devices that are constructed and framed and embedded inside Trojan horses. And a Trojan horse is a gift that externally does not look imposing or dangerous. But because we're operating out of carnality, we will let the gift come in. Did that make some sense? See, if I'm carnal, I'm going to love the way that Trojan horse looks. And we they want us to put it in our living room or in our front yard so it can be the center of our of our admiration. I'm making some sense, right? And again, I'm intentionally not naming things. Casting down imaginations and everything that does what? Exalt itself against the knowledge of God. Ah, there it is. Close your eyes to what you see and open your mind to what it said and now you can know whether or not you're dealing with something that is rooted in an antichrist system. Close your eyes to the beauty of it. Open your mind to the proposition and go, oh, That's not God's word. See what I'm saying? Oh, that sounded so good. Oh, that looks so good. Oh, that felt so good. Wait a minute. That's contrary to God's word. See what I'm getting at now? And that's the hardest one. The hardest one is to get the one where it looks so good. Until we have to now weigh it over against what scripture says. And bringing into captivity every thought to the why Obedience of Christ. We, this here is a phrase that means the lordship of Christ. It means Christ is Lord. When you and I are waging war against these ideas, we're doing it because Christ is Lord. Christ is the one that is worthy to be honored. Christ is the one that God has made both Lord and Christ. And so we're doing everything to bring it into subjection to Christ. This is a big problem in the church, too. This is a big problem. I'm going to do one more thing as we get ready to shut down and enter into prayer. I want you to go back with me now. I want to show you a, a, um, a vision of uh, the utilitarian work of those who are faithful. I want to start back at verse four and walk through verse uh, nine, four through nine, and that's going to be for us under point number two, their collaboration was a sign of unity. And and I'm gonna see if I can make an application and we'll have to drill down deeper into this next week. If you and I are in a warfare, if we're in a spiritual battle, um, then we know that there are sides that have been established, sides on the which um, if you're on God's side, you are supposed to be on his team in this battle sides for which if you're not on God's side, you're on the other side and they are using you and you are using them and you're waging war against God. Does that make some sense? Right. So that's like a real, that's, that's a real thing. Just in case you didn't know you, you may not wake up every day, believing you're in a battle, but actually you are. Okay. And so, and that battle has micro realities and macro realities. And we both know that because after a while, the macro cumulatively builds up into a macro. And then we go, you know what? That was a battle all along. I didn't want to deal with it. Now I got to deal with it. See what I'm getting at? All right. So I'm just letting you know, if you go for prolonged periods in your your week or your months and you don't sense that you're in a spiritual battle that just, just requires discerning that side versus the side you're on, you are asleep, Okay, because it can't be possible to have a healthy, vital walk with God without every day putting on the full armor of God. It cannot be possible to have the joy of the Lord where you are being hit with darts. Fiery darts by the wicked one because you are not armored up. Your panoply is somewhere else and you're feeling those hits. And you're miserable. See what I'm getting at? You're miserable. You are knocked out of position. So you're off track because a lot of times all the enemy wants to do is to hit you with some of the artillery to knock you off track. Because if it can knock you off track without you knowing it, you're going down a track that is further away from the will of God. And after a while, it gets cold and dark. And that's all it takes. It's to knock you off track by a little bit of something. And we don't need to make you wake up to the reality that you're in a war. You can keep thinking that you're on a, the yellow brick road to to Ozland all you want to. And you're getting further and further and further away from God. That makes sense, right? That's strategy and warfare. But while one says I am a Paul, another I am of Apollos, are you not what? Right. So here's one thing that you and I have to always be careful of, particularly in the church, is hiding behind the stronghold of a party spirit. Hiding behind the stronghold of a party spirit. OK, that's very important. And and, and you and I have talked about this on the larger level. I'm not going to waste a whole lot of time here. This year ought to be a challenge for everyone. This has to be a challenge for everyone, because what this means is if you and I don't discern the attractiveness of a party spirit, you and I can be the product of a party spirit and actually enter into a kind of matrix of group deception. Did that make some sense? When you're in a party spirit, you in a group of people whereby you guys are like minded but your like-mindedness does not generalize across the totality of the body in a way that constitutes a legitimate entity of truth. So cults are that way. Cults can have a whole lot of internal dynamics that constitute fellowship and taking care of one another and enjoying one another, but their overall worldview is dark and divisive and destructive, and it doesn't correspond with truth. Here's another way I'm going to help you with that. I'm going to lob this in so you can get it. Most of the time when you're caught up inside a party spirit cult like community, the only way you can see it is if you have an opportunity to step on the outside of it and see it for what it is. You will never see the cultic tendencies inside that system. You will never see it because you're inside and inside any system, no matter how dark it is, it has its own internal coherence. It has its own system of logic. It will grant you the grounds of believing that it's coherent so long as you're operating in the narrow sphere of that system. That's how cults work. Okay, I'm letting you know. Cults in the church, cults in secular systems, cults in businesses, cults in relationships. The child of the living God has to be able to be objective enough to know when these cultic tendencies are showing up everywhere. Because that's what the party spirit is. Okay, okay. And, and, and you and I have to know how to negotiate what it means to deal with the body of Christ at large in all of its beauty and diversity. And yet at its non-negotiable unity, the non-negotiable unity factors that make up the true body of Christ around the world versus those things that would get narrowed down into kind of cultic tendencies. Did that make some sense? This is a difficult thing unless you're mature. If you're not mature, you can easily slip into the group of four over there and no more. Us four, and no more. And they got all the answers. Until, uh, uh, Until their neighbor comes along and spies them out. Right. Which is what needs to happen. If you're in a cult, you need somebody from the outside able to actually lodge an accusation into the group so that the group can have an epiphany that there is something wrong here. And self criticism, self analysis and group analysis can take place to make sure you guys are on the right track. Does that make some sense? Right. Otherwise, you're being set up to be part of what is called a honeybee network. This is a beehive network system. A beehive network system is all of these little cultic groups are really part of a larger beehive system that's controlled by a grander scheme that is able to keep all of these little groups thinking that they are the center and paragon of revelation and they're a million miles away from the truth. You and I have this going on in America and in the West in such visceral ways, I don't even have time to go into it. This is why every day you and I wake up, we have to wake up asking the question, is he mine and am I his? And it's Jesus, the chief revelation of God's glory for me and the grounds of my being and purpose for existing. Because if he is, then even if I am inadvertently attached to some kind of uh, maybe some kind of sympathy towards some kind of uh, party spirit, At some point, Christ will intervene to show me that I have committed some temporary idolatry that is no good for me or my family or anyone else. Does that make some sense? Very important. So here, verse four, verse five, let's keep going. Carnality, I need to say, is where we can get trapped when it's all about me and my flesh. We can fall prey to anything. Who then is Paul and Apollos but ministers by whom you believed, even as the Lord gave to every man? You know what Paul just taught here? He taught the two <clears throat> are individuals, but they operate out of a larger unity. And that larger unity is for the good of the whole body. Did that make some sense? Paul is about to show you and me that between him and Apollos, there is no party spirit. Paul and Apollos knows this. They are servants of God. This is the Greek term, diakonos, from which we get the term deacon. They are servants. What, what that means is even though they're operating out of an apostolic authority, their humility is one of a deacon. See, that, too, is the paradox of the gospel. Humility before what? Honor. So this is how God can use Paul and use um, uh, Apollos. Paul is the one that's rude in speech. Apollos is eloquent in speech. He's the eloquent brother. In fact, his Greek name betrays him because Apollos is one of those gods that is eloquent in his presentation. So his mama named him that, but God saved him. And so Apollos is solid in the word, but he's eloquent. And this is why some wanted to be with Apollos and others wanted to be with Paul. I got it. Apollos makes you feel good. Paul going to get in your tail like a good old Hebrew daddy. See what I'm getting at? And what Paul is saying, sorry, you may not like my speech. My speech may be rude and contemptible, but God is using me. And, and I have a sword and I'm your spiritual father. He told them that you guys got a bunch of teachers, but I am your spiritual father. God used me to plant the gospel in your community. I love that. Because what Paul is saying to the church there is when you when you meet, when you hook up with, with Apollos, you're not going to find any substantial division between me and Apollos. He teaches slightly different than I do because he's a different human being. I teach slightly different than he does because I'm a different human being. But we have the same message, the same gospel, and we're committed to the same God and we're laboring in the same cultivated field. Did that make some sense? All right, so very good. Watch here, verse six. I have planted and Apollos watered, but God gave the increase. So now here, this is what we call trifecta in, uh, in horse racing. This is the one, two, three factor. If you have the first principle right and you have the second principle right, you can expect a third principle to be a winning principle, okay? I have planted, Paul, Apollos has water, and guess what? God loved that enough to increase it. Did that make some sense? I have planted, Apollos has water, And you can work that through for yourself. Paul initially establishes the gospel in Corinth. Apollos comes behind and unpacks the scriptures in the eloquence of his deep knowledge of the Hebrew language. And he can do it in such a way that the people in Corinth really get Apollos. But Apollos didn't do the hard work of breaking up the fallow ground and putting in the seed like Paul did. And watch this. Paul does not mind that all he was called to do there was plant that seed. Another brother comes along and waters it. And I can tell you what Apollos would have said. Apollos would have said, I'm so glad. I'm so glad Paul was the one that had to do the hard work. Because I don't like getting my fingernails dirty. I just went around watering. And God gave a harvest. I'm going to show you that next week. But before we do, I want to close here with Isaiah chapter 52 here. I want us to see this. Isaiah chapter 52. Can you pull up Jeremiah chapter 3, verse 15, then Isaiah 52, Jeremiah 3, 15. Just a quote. Listen to this. And I will give you what? I will give you what? It's in the plural. So that means multiple. And what kind of pastors will they be? According to my heart, this means that they would have been part of the Davidic rule. Okay, this here is a Davidic principle. Dawid is David, the one of whom God said he is the man after my own heart. Okay, I just want you to get this is a Davidic principle. This is a Davidic principle. David is a picture of Messiah. He's a picture of Christ. Christ is the very bosom of the father. This should be the fundamental drive of all leadership. Did that make some sense? That they should have the recommendation of God as being those who are men and laborers of the cause of the gospel after God's own heart. Because that's the same thing that God said of David, right? He did not say that of King Saul. He did not say that of King Saul. It's important for you to know. According to my heart, which shall do what? feeds you with knowledge and what? Great, great promise, isn't it? Right, it gives the metaphor of the sheep eating well, growing, being healthy, and actually making it safe to their um, harbor. Now, here's the one that I want to close with, Isaiah 52, verse seven through nine. So these are pastors in the plural. You meet them. You want to make sure that they know God and that they're teaching according to the will and revelation So God is using an anthropomorphical term when he says heart. You guys know that that's an anthropomorphism. That means the center of his being. That actually means Christ has to be in you because you can't know the father without the son. Right. No man has seen God at any time. Only he who is in the bosom of the father has revealed him. So legitimate teaching has to be the consequence of men drawing near to the father through the son by the Spirit. You guys got that, right? It's important to know. It's important to also know the the marks of a difference between a faithful pastor and an unfaithful one. It's really important to know, particularly in the day in which we live. This is beautiful. How beautiful upon the mountain are the feet of him that brings good tidings. Who is the him here? The preacher. The preacher is the one bringing good tidings. That's called the gospel. See that term? Good, good tidings. That's the Hebrew equivalent of the New Testament. You and Galion, the gospel. And, and here's what the uh, Arthur is saying. Aren't the feet of such a one with a message of good tidings? Beautiful. Of course, they are when you've been in bondage and they're coming to let you know your warfare is over. The battle is won. You're free to go. That's a beautiful thing, isn't it? Now, watch this that publishes peace, that brings good tidings of good things, that publishes salvation, that saith unto Zion, your God, what? Right. 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 That's what we want to hear. We want to hear that our God reigns. We want to hear that our God is a God of salvation. This is Yeshua. Right. Jehovah saves. Right. Obviously this text is telling us about one man that we all come in and that is the Lord Jesus, right? He came preaching the good news of the kingdom. But we all should be able to mimic that, right? Every one of us. Next verse. Your watchmen, and they're called watchmen, is that right? The same pastor, the same foot soldiers are called watchmen. You need them. Our world is diabolical. You need crazy people like your pastor. You need crazy people that are willing to watch, that are willing to expose what's going on to give you an understanding of the landscape because you don't have time. If you had time, then you would see it the way that those of us who are called to watch see it. You don't have time. You need to pray that God opens your ears because you need to be able to hear when the watchmen cry because they're watching while you sleep. You get to enjoy resting while they watch. Your watchman shall lift up the voice. Now notice what, how, how Isaiah describes the unity of the watchman. With the voice together, they shall what? For they shall see eye to eye when the Lord shall bring again Zion. Isn't that beautiful? They shall see eye to eye as God is bringing his people in. They're singing of the praises of the Lord and they're seeing the same things critically important that that is taking place in a community, particularly when we're dealing with a warfare motif. I think there's one more verse. I'm going to stop here. Verse 9. Break forth into joy, sing together, ye waste places of Jerusalem, for the Lord has comforted his people. He hath redeemed Jerusalem. Ah, what is Jerusalem? It's the center where the temple is. See, we're back at the temple, aren't we? See, a, a solid biblical based hebrew would know ah oh, the prophet is bringing us to that place where god's representative glory is remember the temple is the permanent presence of god amongst his people through christ the permanent presence of god amongst his people in his people through christ christ is the temple And we are the temple in him and God dwells in us.